scripture reading will be 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 29 through 39. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sails of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Inside of the announcement sheet, you'll find an outline that you can use as as we go through... uh, uh, the study of First Kings chapter 18 this morning, and, and while you're getting that all out, uh, just uh, some more uh, information, uh, kind of FYI information for you. This next Sunday, as you know, at the end of the year, we always have what we do as a, a look-back message or a look-back sermon, a look-back Sunday, and that's what we're going to do this next Sunday, and we're going to look back and be reminded of all of the things that God accomplished this year through this church family and all of the ways that God used this church family to serve people in this community. That'll be January 4th. And then on Sunday morning, January 11th, as you know, we also have a yearly theme that we roll out. And that Sunday, January 11th, is going to be the morning that we roll out the theme for 2015. Also, uh, before we have our prayer this morning... um, uh, it's always, it's always good to be aware of people that are around you and, and people that, uh, that bless your life. Uh, a, a couple that, uh, that have been a part of our church family here for a very, very long time. Uh, first, um, one of the, the husband grew up in this church and uh, then married uh, a woman and they served overseas in Japan for 15 years. And this, uh, this past year, uh, about the middle of uh, 2014, uh, they... Uh, came back to the States with their family and are going to be settling here in the States after 15 years of very fruitful and, and effective ministry in Japan. And today is Ken and Etsko Heiston's last Sunday with us. And they're going to be moving tomorrow to Sweeney, Texas, where Ken is going to, uh, to pick up the, uh, the mantle of, of preaching and, and serve as the pulpit minister for the Sweeney Church of Christ. And, and Ken and Etsko, can we have you stand one last time we want to say we love you. And we say Godspeed to you, and we're, we're, we're happy for all of the ways that God is going to use you in the future in Sweeney, Texas.
Also, uh, we, we have guests who come and are part of our church assemblies from time to time. And uh, a lot of time we, we recognize these folks and, and we know who they are. And other times um, uh, they can come in and they can go without us uh, really having a chance to welcome them or to greet them or to spend time with them. And I didn't want that to happen this morning for a couple that's very, very special to Ellen and to me and to our family uh, you know, lots of times we, we put a lot of focus on the people that do mission work full time and sometimes don't recognize the great and wonderful contributions that, that people who may not be doing mission work full time but are in the military or with the State Department working with embassies or in, uh, with different industries who, because of their faith, seek out uh, a community of faith, a church, wherever they are in the world, to, to worship and to encourage those people. And uh, we have a couple like that in our, our church assembly this morning. Uh, this couple uh, have worked with the State Department. Uh, Lane and Ruth Ann Cubstead are here with us this morning. Lane uh, was part of the, the embassy crew in Tehran uh, back in the 70s when uh, the, the Shah was leaving and Ayatollah Khomeini was, uh, was taking over. Uh, has worked in different places. Where they became very dear to us, it was during our time in Brasilia, Brazil. And uh, Lane and Ruth Ann were there. Lane was an undersecretary to the, uh, the ambassador there in Brasilia. And they were surrogate grandparents to Jessica and to Jordan. And when we found out that they were coming back and, uh, uh, to, to, uh, to San Antonio to, uh, for, for a special occasion in their family, we asked Jordan if he remem- remembered Lane and Ruth Ann. And he said, uh, yes, these are the people that uh, I would go over to their house and watch DuckTales with. And we said, yes, that's them. And they were uh, completely generous with our family. And there were, there were uh, you know, it's difficult times when you're on the mission field from time to time. And Lane and Ruth Ann were rocks for Ellen and for me and for our family and for the other missionary families uh, that were there at that time. And 60 years ago today... They were in San Antonio celebrating their, uh, their honeymoon. And 60 years later, today, they are celebrating that 60th wedding anniversary in, in San Antonio with, with a daughter and a son-in-law, Con and Kathy Drennan. And I'd like to have Lane and Ruth Ann stand and be recognized for all of the great things that they've done for the kingdom overseas. Let's pray. Father, how beautiful it is for us to, to, to come together and in the glow of, of the grace that You have filled our hearts with, inexpressible joy and that peace that passes understanding because of Your nearness. We, we come together as, as a family and lay down all of our pride, not only with each other, but before You. And, and come, Father, Asking not only to, to, to be blessed by you, but to bless your name in worship and through faithfulness and trust in all of the promises that you have given us. We pray, Father, at all times to, to be transformed, to, to have that fruit of the Spirit become such uh, 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 an indelible part of, of, of the way that, that we live and where we place our affections and and how we respond and to react to all of the things around us, Father, to bring glory to You and to help folk around us to understand the power of Your kingdom as it comes to reside in our hearts and souls. 
We're thankful, Father, for the, uh, the text that we have before us this morning. And we ask that You give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And we ask, Father, that, that You help this text, Father, to, to change the way that, that, that we live in this world around us to Your glory. We pray it in Christ's name and all the church said. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18, but I want to go all the way over to Matthew chapter 17. It's a really interesting chapter in Matthew's Gospel. It's the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. And you remember the story. Jesus is getting kind of to that end part of His ministry. He's gone to the northern part of Galilee. He's spending some time away from, from the crowds. He's there with His disciples. And He goes up on top of this mountain with James and John and Peter. And while He's there, He is transfigured before them, which means that the glory that Christ shared with God in heaven begins to make its way out of His body again. And they see it. They see it very visibly with their own eyes. The fact that His clothing became whiter than white, that it became whiter than the white that is enlightening itself. And it was a great, great moment. But there's kind of a, a, a side part of that, of that transfiguration and that's when Peter, James, and John, they see two figures with Jesus. And you remember who those are, right? They are, first, Moses and Elijah. Now, you think about the Old Testament, and as Herb mentioned before, you know, we, we went through the entire Bible this year, spent a lot of time in the Old Testament uh, thinking about those, those, those prophets and thinking about those, those wisdom literature books and thinking about Torah and, and, and uh, those books of Moses. And in thinking about all of those characters, from, from David to Moses to Abraham, you know, these are the two that show up. Moses and Elijah. Why? Well, I think Moses is probably pretty easy to, to understand. Moses is the one, the, the, the greatest figure in the Old Testament. He is the one that led the people out of their slavery, led them in that exodus and, and helped them, led them to that place where they, they entered into the promised land and, and were formed into this nation that God called His own. And in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is often portrayed as the greater Moses who leads His people out of a greater exodus and delivers them from a greater enslavement and enslavement to sin. So Moses, pretty easy to understand. But what about Elijah, especially when you think about Abraham or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Joseph or Isaac or Jacob or any of the other patriarchs? Why is Elijah there? This is a good question. And I think the answer to it is that Elijah is the great prophet that is associated in the Hebrew mind of turning the hearts of the people back to God. Not just on a regular day-to-day -day basis, but turning the hearts of the people back to God during a time in which there was a tremendous shift in the faith life of the people of Israel. And 1 Kings chapter 18 is the story of Elijah doing that very thing. Now, as you know, and we want to do a little context here. As you know, in, in the days of Elijah, the faith of the people of Israel have experienced a, a gigantic shift. It shifted their, their focus and their trust their, their worship from the God of Israel, Yahweh, to, to, to Baal. And you ask the question, why in the world would they do something like that, especially with the history that they have with God? Well, the answer, I think, is the shift is brought about because of a shift in the weather. There's a drought in the land, and Israel is beginning to suffer. And part of the appeal of Baal is that he is the, the, the one, the God of the neighboring nations that controls the weather. 
And whenever you see an image of Baal, you usually see him with his right hand up in the air because the right hand is the hand of your strength. It's the arm of your power. And usually what is in that hand is a lightning bolt because it's Baal who controls the weather. He's the one that controls the lightning. He's the one that brings the rain. And also associated with the worship of Baal was cult prostitution, sometimes involving some very young girls. There was the mutilation of self, as we're going to see here in just a little bit. And there was also the occasional sacrifice of the firstborn. And here's Israel in the middle of a drought for a lot of years, and Israel has grown, uh, has grown very desperate. And so they decide that they're going to ch- take a chance with Baal. They decide to buy a lottery ticket with Baal, which is not a very wise decision because the worship of Baal is going to bring a lot of terrible things into their life, as we'll see in this text. But it's into that context of, of, of desperation and the drought and, and not wanting to trust God very much anymore because God's not bringing the rain, but wanting to trust the rain God of all of those nations around them that Elijah enters into the scene. And Elijah just cannot believe what it is that he's saying. And he sort of says out loud in verse 21, How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, then follow Him. Now, Elijah is not just a guy that's going to kind of throw out a rhetorical question and, you know, think about it over dinner tonight. He's a man of action. He is a man that is going to take some faith action, and that's what he does in the text. He's got to do something about these, this double-mindedness on the part of Israel. So he organizes this contest, sort of a winner-take-all contest, on top of Mount Carmel. And it's a God of Israel versus Baal kind of a contest, but it ends up being a little bit lopsided. You have 450 prophets of Baal. You have 400 prophets of the Asherah versus the one prophet of God, which is Elijah. 850 versus one. And as word begins to spread of this contest, people begin to hear about it. They get interested. It's, 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 it's a big show that is coming into the, the region around Mount Carmel. And the people begin to pour into that area. They have to see this contest for themselves. And in this winner-take-all kind of contest, there are going to be just a couple of rules. Not, not much but a couple that have to be strictly abided by. The first is you build two altars. You build two altars, one for Baal, and you build one for God. And you separate the two so that nobody mixes them up. The second rule is you have to take a bull and you have to put it on top of the wood uh, on each of these altars, but no one is going to be allowed to start the fire for the sacrifice. The rule is, and we pick up in verse 24 of chapter 18, You will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by what? Answers by what, church? By fire. He is God. He's the real God. He's the true, bona fide, genuine, authentic God who deserves all of the worship. Well, everyone agrees to the contest rule. Seems pretty fair. Can't really cheat if you're looking for, you know, fire to come down from the sky. And... Elijah allows the prophets of Asherah and the prophets of Baal to go first. We pick up the story in verse 26. So they took the bowl given them and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from the morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Elijah is, is, is actually uh, trash-talking here. The kind that you would do 
in your backyard uh, playing football or playing wiffle ball with your brothers. He, he begins to taunt them at noon. He says, shout louder. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought and you need to wake him up. Or he's busy or he's traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and what? Slashed. Slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their what? Custom. Until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. You get the emphasis in the language here, right? There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, evening has come, and it's Elijah's time. It's his turn, and he does a couple of interesting things here. You look down at verse 30. Elijah tells the people to gather closer around him. Crowd has shown up. They've been kind of milling around, watching the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah do their thing. Maybe because of the, the, the blood that is beginning to flow, they're backing up a little bit, especially with the swords and the spears that are flaying about. But Elijah, now it's his turn. He said, I want you to gather closer to me. And the reason is he wants them to not only see what he's doing, but he wants them to hear what he's saying while he does it. And what Elijah does is he takes, and this is where everybody can see it, he takes how many stones? Twelve stones. Twelve stones. Twelve stones. Twelve stones. I've heard that before. Twelve stones. I wonder what it means. He takes twelve stones. And notice what else he does. He puts the twelve stones in, in, in place, uh, or as he's putting these, these twelve stones in place, the author of 1 Kings makes it clear that Elijah is making a point with these stones. As he finds these stones and puts them on top of each other, he's instructing them. The twelve stones represent what? The twelve tribes. The twelve stones are the twelve tribes. And they, they were made into those twelve tribes, even though they were this massive group of people. They were a million plus people coming out of Egypt. And when they get to Mount Sinai, right there in the middle of the book of Exodus, they're there for about nine to twelve months. And God is giving them the Decalogue. And God is giving them instruction. And God is teaching them about His holiness and about His grace and about His love. And they enter into covenant with each other. And it's there that they are turned into these twelve tribes which make up the nation of Israel. The twelve stones are the twelve tribes. And they were made into the twelve tribes by God who had compassion on them and made them a people when they were not a people. He had brought them out of slavery. And He had brought them into a promised land. And God made them His people by going into covenant with them. And as these twelve stones are being piled up Elijah is reminding the people of the covenant that they have with God and the love that God has for them. And these 12 stones call to memory all of the promises that God has made and kept with His people. Now, Elijah, I don't know how old he is, but he is not a spring chicken. And it's probably taking a while for these stones to get piled up and to get laid up in such a way that this, this gigantic bull can be put on them. And it takes time. And as they see the first stone and the second stone and the fourth stone and the tenth stone, it gives them time to think about all of the ways that God had worked in and out of their lives and had blessed them and taken care of them and His promises and protection and all of these things. Why does He do this? Well, it's this. The stones are to remind the people of the God that they are giving up for Baal. The stones are to remind the people of Israel of the God, the God of heaven, that they are giving up for Baal. 
You know, there are no such stones over where the prophets of Baal and Asherah are located. There are no stones there. There's a pile of wood and there's an, an unsacrificed animal. But there are no You know why there's no stones? Because Baal had never entered into a gracious covenant, a covenant of love, a covenant of mercy and of grace with the people of Israel. Baal had never made those promises to Israel. And one of the things that Elijah is trying to remind the people of is that God promises and delivers a unique kind of love. Over in the book of Isaiah, one of my favorite chapters, chapter 49, it's a very special passage. And God is revealing all of His great plans for the world. It's going to be a day in which all of the nations pour into a mountain. Those that are far and those that are near are going to be brought together on God's mountain. It's going to be a time in which God is recognized in all of the world. And it's going to be a time of, of greatness for all of humanity. But about the time you get down to verse 14, Israel, who is not in a very good place with God right now, is a little skeptical. And they go, how have you loved us? How have you, have you loved us? In fact, what they do say is that, God, you have forgotten us. God, you have forsaken us. It, it's not that you're just not doing anything for us. You have forsaken us. We don't even know if we're even in your mind, God. And God listens to that. And notice one of the really, imp- one of the really important things to notice in that passage is that God has unrolled this great vision of the future. And Israel says, you know, I, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem to be a part of our experience right now. And God does not jump all over them. And doesn't call them a killjoy. And doesn't jump all over them and say, you know, why, why, why with all the negativity? He listens and then He responds. And in verse 15 He says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no, no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, say this with me, I will not forget you. Let's say it again. I will not forget you. What God is saying is that I, I've not forsaken you. I've not forgotten you. I mean, think about a mother with a, with a baby and the compassion that she has on this child, which, you know, even though she may forget, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. And what he's trying to do is to give them a metaphor. He's trying to get them to slow down for a minute so they can expand their thinking and their, their knowledge on what God is like. And he wants them to think about how great is the love of a mother, generally speaking. It's great. I mean, think about all the corny country and western songs. There is no love greater than that a mom has for a kid. What is it Merle Haggard saying? Mama tried. Remember that song? Mom loves you no matter how deep a hole you've dug yourself into, what kind of bed you've made that you have to lie on. But then moms do have limits. As great as that love is, there's such a thing as a bad mom. And moms can leave, sometimes in death. And sometimes moms can forget when there's dementia and senility that sets in. But God says, even if she forgets, I never will. And this is why Elijah is so exercised and so lathered up with this Baal worship. He understands that we have this God-shaped hole in our hearts, and that's just another way of saying that we have a God-love deficit in our hearts. And one of the things that God has poured out on these people over and over again is His love and His mercy and His compassion and His grace and given them the grace of His presence. 
Why are you trying to fill that hole up with something else? Now, one of the things that we tell people as a church, based on this passage in Isaiah and others, is that God has the infinite capacity to love people, regardless of what they've done. Which leads to the second thing that Elijah is doing here. He's not only reminding them of this this unique love that God delivers, but also that God offers a way back. God offers a way back. Now that the stones are laid for the altar, a bull is killed, it's put on top of these rocks, and all of Israel knew what that meant. They knew exactly what that meant, that God is holy. But at some point along the line, and we know where that is, in Genesis chapter 3, you have the eating of the forbidden fruit. God is holy, but now the people, the human beings that are made in God's image have become unholy. And the way back to God was through the death of an innocent. The death of an innocent. In this case, a bull. And these same people that have gathered around Elijah and are watching the stones being piled up are remembering all of this. They had seen these sacrifices for centuries. And all of this that's happening is the foreshadowing of the death of another innocent that would make atonement for sin and open up the way for people to come back into the presence of God forever. Now remember that that Israel has been called to gather up around Elijah. Come close. Gather around while all of these preparations are being made. And Elijah, again, no spring chicken. He's been around for a while. The people know him. He knows the people. He recognizes some of them by name. He knows them and can't believe as he looks at them, as he's piling up these stones, that these people would sacrifice their firstborn to Baal when the God who loves them more than a mother would give up His only son, would give up His only son centuries down the road. It's ironic that most people think that Christianity, they think about it this way, I've got to give up a lot of stuff. It's sacrificing something. When the reality of the Christian faith is that God is the one that gave it up. That God is the one that that has given up the stuff and has sacrificed the stuff in order for us to be able to come to Him. And it's ironic in the sense that the great sacrifice that has to be made for men and women to have a relationship with God has already been made and God has done it. But back in the story, Elijah's not done. When it comes to getting the sacrifice ready, there's still some more things that have to be done. He wants the water to be brought in and to drench the sacrifice. He has this done three times until, verse 35, the water runs down around the altar and even fills the trench. The whole thing is just swamped. And then Elijah just prays. There's no self-mutilation. There's no histrionics. Elijah does not have to get God's attention. He already has it. And he says in verse 36, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then, really important word, then. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and burned up the wood and the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. 
You ever wonder how hot fire has to be to burn up rocks? I don't have a clue. So I had to go to that fount of information and wisdom on the internet, Wikipedia. Now, if Wikipedia is true, and they're not always about the truth, they're more about perception, but it says, depending on the rock, anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's really hot, regardless of what your perception might be. And when the people see this display of power in response to Elijah's prayer, they say, verse 39, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Which is a reminder that God has limitless power. Sometimes people want to see that power before they decide to give religion a chance. They want to see some display of power, manifestation of of some miracle before they turn to religion as an answer. The people in Jesus' day, even though they were surrounded by living proof of His miracles, people being healed, they one time said to Jesus in Luke chapter 4, do here in your hometown the things that we've heard that you've done in Capernaum. And you know, people think that they need to see the fireworks and the amazing displays of shock and awe before they can believe. You know, the greatest display, I think, of the power of God is, is just draped around this auditorium. Do you know that I, the greatest manifestation of the power of God are sinful people? mean-spirited people, people who hate and are full of prejudice and bias, full of pride and arrogance and insolence and hubris. The greatest manifestation of power is when God can take a human heart like that and turn it into one that is full of love and faithfulness and gentleness and kindness and self-control, patience, all of that stuff. And when you look around this room, what we have in each heart that has been transformed by God's power is you have a manifestation of, of His power that cannot be equaled anywhere else. About ten days ago, Ellen and I, along with a, a, a couple of members here, uh, Jill Green and Becky Whittington, had the opportunity to go and see a pre-release of the movie Unbroken. We had... Uh, Many of you have. We've read the book and have been amazed at, at Louis Zamperini's life and uh, had a, a book club meeting and even discussed the book over, uh, over some very good food over at, at Jill's house. And uh, some of you have already seen the movie. It opened up this last Thursday. Uh, but the, the movie is, is a tremendous movie on, on the life of, of Louis Zamperini. And if you've not read the book, uh, I would recommend it. He, he's a high school track star that turns into an Olympian, runs as a high school kid in the 36th Olympic in, uh, in Munich. Uh, World War II breaks out. He's fighting in the Pacific. He's a bombardier in World War II. Uh, survives, survives some tremendous flak hitting the, the, the plane that he's flying in. Uh, in the end, he's sort of ordered, to, to along with that crew that, whose plane has been shot to pieces, to get into another B-24 Liberator and to fly a search and rescue mission. The plane falls apart over the ocean, over the Pacific, they are in a raft. There's 11 men of, uh, on this crew. Three survive, of which Zamperini is one. Two lifeboats. They spend 47 days out on the open ocean before they're finally captured by the enemy. They are in a concentration camp until the end of the war. 
And by the time the end of the war comes, uh, Zamperini's life is just completely unraveled. Completely. He has been tough. He, his will is unbroken. He is tough. But now that he is back in the United States, the war is over. He is anything but unbroken. And his life is falling apart. He is, he is fractured as a human being. He's, his life is fragmented. He's drinking heavily. He is starting to circle the drain. He's tried to do everything he can from marrying somebody he loves to holding down different jobs. His life is, is going down the tubes until the day he becomes a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. And his heart is so completely transformed. So completely transformed that he is able to go back and to face those that had tortured him during the war and to offer them forgiveness. His life is so transformed that he never, ever, ever has to lean on anything else again to find significance and purpose and joy and peace in life ever again. The power of God transforming his heart. And when I think, when I think about that power, and how it's touched every single person in this room in one way or another, to one degree or another. It reminds me of the greatness of the grace that has come to us. That God's love is so unique that in His own righteousness and holiness could have kicked us to the curb, but He does not. He offers us a way back. And not only does He offer us a way back, but He puts His limitless power at our disposal in order to turn our hearts back to Him in such a way, in such a way, that it makes an indelible mark and an impression on the people in all of the communities around us. To think about that kind of power and that kind of love that can change a life and make it whole once again and can put it back together. And friends, all, all I'm trying to say this morning to you is that if, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, your sins washed away in baptism, have chosen to make Jesus your Lord, then that is a power that at your baptism, God's Spirit came to live inside of you in such a way that you not only were sanctified, but you were completely placed day after day, step after step, into coming into conformity with the life of Jesus and all that that entails. But if you've never done that, then the Word of God makes very clear that there is an offer of that kind of power and that kind of love in your own life. That God is willing for those that turn their hearts back towards Him to, to have their sins completely washed away, to put in a place where it will never be held against them ever again, to have those sins washed away and given a clean conscience that you can sleep at night, that you can sleep at night, that you can sleep at night, knowing that you're forgiven and that your guilt has been taken away. That a power, you know, sometimes we try to do this on our own and we try to, we try to wield so much power in our life that we're by, by the sheer willpower, human willpower, we're going to make these changes only to fall short less than a month later, less than 28 days later. It's not a habit. It's not a habit that we keep for life. But God brings and promises a love and a power into your life that can make those, those wholesome 
changes in your life real and forever until the day that you see Him face to face. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now, and maybe there are some ways that our church can minister to you. We're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them about your needs as we stand and sing together. Let us be faithful, faithful, faithful Lord. Let us be faithful, faithful Lord. Though we can.